0: Hello,
1: and thanks for joining us here for episode 624 with David Nihill. This was a fun conversation. He's a comedian. We got some jokes, we got some laughs, and he will help you be all the more engaging and compelling in presentations and more with his hard-won lessons on storytelling and humor. So you'll learn, one, the secret to creating stories that stick, two, how to use callbacks to delight listeners, and three, how to always remember what you want to say. So if you'd like to reference the full transcript of our conversation or check out the links to tools and goodies that we reference here, you can find that at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP624. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP624. And while you're there, you might sign up for some cool stuff such as the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you summary wisdom insights from David, as well as access to the vault of all these summaries from every guest ever—that's 624 of them. We call that the gold nuggets. They show up in your email inbox as each guest goes live. You can read them in about three minutes, and you can access the the whole vault, which is pretty handy. Now, here's David's story. David Nihill is a best-selling author of "Do You Talk Funny," listed by Book Authority as the best book of all time on public speaking and storytelling. And he's been called one of the best speaking coaches out there, according to Forbes.com. His work's been featured in Inc., Lifehacker, Huffington Post, Forbes, Irish Times, TED, and NPR. His videos have been viewed more than 40 million times. And he's the winner of the prestigious San Francisco Comedy Competition, a runner-up in the Moth's largest U.S. Grand Slam storytelling competition, and the first ever Irishman to have a special on dry bar comedy. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free Now, here's David. David, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
2: Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having
1: me all the way from exotic Ireland. Oh yeah, well, well, it's great to have you here, and uh, it's it's a late night for you, a bit, but uh, you say there's not much to do right now. <laughs> anyway.
2: It was a very early night at 8.45pm back in the days in Ireland before this COVID carry-on, but now with no pubs or bars or alcohol on tap, really, it is a much longer evening with a much earlier bedtime. It, it, the time just doesn't go by as fast or as fun. Yeah,
1: understood. Well, uh, you've got a lot of fun stories. In fact, you're award winning at storytelling. We're going to learn some of your, your wisdom there and in when it comes to being engaging and, and funny. So, but first, can you open us up with uh, the short version of your
2: story of being an imposter? I did impersonate a bit of a fella called Irish Dave who just happened to be an established comedian in Ireland, albeit with possibly the worst stage name in history. But nobody seemed to question that one in America. So I did pretend to be a comedian called Irish Dave for a full year. To try and get over fear of public speaking in the worst way possible which was to do stand-up comedy every single night multiple times a night and i had a fake website and i had fake twitter followers and facebook fans at one stage i was real big in india there for a while which was a uh, slightly interesting just by sheer of the fact that you could go on fiverr.com and buy fans from india at a very discounted price which is ethically questionable but definitely was done and that helped me get booked. And it is forbidden in some contracts I've signed. <laughs> it is forbidden, yeah. Well, I faced no such legal technicalities, thankfully, a few years ago. And I, it just allowed me to get booked in a bunch of places I really shouldn't have been with very little experience. And it, it snowballed and got a little bit out of control. Well, it's so funny. Well, in the US, it's like, okay, your name is Dave and you're
1: Irish, so you must be Irish Dave. So. By default,
2: yeah. But there's no way you're going to turn up an arm and we're like, oh my God, it's American Pete. Like, it would just seem too obvious. But you guys love that stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, that's fun. That's fun. And I love, uh, I I saw some of your YouTube videos. I love how you make fun of uh, Americans uh, playfully. Uh, uh, The majority of our listeners are in the US, uh, but we have people from all over the world. So so feel free to to let her rip um i love it when folks with with accents do an american accent can you lay one on us oh
2: they're like oh my gosh i've been doing it recently because in ireland we have a requirement that you can't drive more than five kilometers from your house but technically i'm on vacation from san francisco right now <laughs> whenever i get pulled over and it goes horribly wrong because they'll be like how many weeks are you here for and you'll be like three Irish people just cannot pronounce the number three and the police obviously know that and they're like an American would never nail the word "tree" like that and I think that's what gives me away every time but yeah I definitely have a horrendous range of American defaults accent. You know I figured out the hard way that more people speak Spanish probably than English in America so I was like let me just get my Latino voice down. In Spanish, <laughs> actually, the best voice is an American trying to speak Spanish, where it's like "yo quiero un hamburguesa," and you're like, "That is not Spanish. You are just completely using American pronunciation there to order a burger." Well, I like that you brought up burgers because uh, I'm thinking of a guy. His name is Nick.
1: Uh, in college, he was from the UK, and I was like, "Hey, so so, what do we sound like to you?" And he said, "I don't know. It's kind of. He's like, I, I don't know. It's kind of like um." hey, guys,
2: want to grab a burger and fries? <laughs> it's like, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I must say, I, I poke fun at America, but always in a, in a lovely way. I like it a lot, and it's kind of been my home from home for like 14, 15 years. So it, it's, it creates some great opportunities. You can't beat the positive in America. Like, I this... In Ireland, if I announced to my friends that I was going to try and do stand up comedy to get over fear of public speaking, they would quickly label me an idiot and tell me I was wasting my time. Where in America, they'd be like, you should do that, man. That could be a great learning experience. And it's a very different approach. And you guys definitely lean on the positive where we lean on the negative. All right. Well, well so let's talk about it. So
1: you learn some things the hard way, and you, you've captured some of those learnings in your book. Do you talk funny? So. Can you just lay it on as, first of all, sort of what do professionals have to learn from comedians when it comes to public speaking?
2: I think everything, because the scary thing is like if you dig into people who teach public speaking or train it, you realize that they haven't clocked up that many hours on stage themselves. So you're like, where are you actually getting this information from that you've put together? They seem to ignore if you're a big subscriber to say Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours room that he popularized at 10,000 hours it takes doing something to make a master. You're really not going to find any other group other than comedians when you go down that research path that is doing the 10,000 hours and doing it in the most high pressure environment possible. Like there is nothing more difficult than someone who's paid money for you to make them happy when they're having a horrible day and just walking in, sinking a couple of shots, crossing their arms and going, hey, idiot, entertain me. That is horrendous. And imagine you do that night after night like they estimate it takes comedians about seven years on average to be able to make a full time income from comedy. And that, that pretty much pans out in my experience as Acker. And that's kind of putting two to three to four hours into your craft most days over a period of seven years. That is a very large amount of learning in a very painful way. And the thing is, what did they learn the hard way on that journey? And and most of the time, it's just a more succinct, entertaining form of storytelling that you're missing in the average world of any snooze fest corporate presentation. Or even worse at the moment, like virtual meetings are scaring the life out of people emotionally where someone with an imaginary sombrero sitting in front of a background of a place they've never been to. There was a guy on a call the other day with me and he was sitting on a virtual toilet in the middle of the call. And I was like, that's just, that's not good. Just make it stop now. So like never on earth have you had such an opportunity to stand out in such an easy way by doing something a little bit different and open the engagement in all your talks. Like does all you have to do if you're the average listener is take four or five stories that you absolutely love to tell. They're the ones that when you go to a college reunion or a work meetup of colleagues, you just kind of forgot about or haven't seen in years. And they're like, oh, Pete, you got to tell that story like that's the one. Tell it. And you're like, oh, come on. I tell the story every Christmas when we meet up for beers. But like every one of us has those three, four, five core stories that we kind of forget about. That for some reason, when it comes to business public speaking, we abandoned them and we'd be much better off if we just rewrote them. Change the word order ever so slightly. So we'd borrow something from the world of stand-up comedy, which would be the structure to tell the story, i.e. start in the action, know what you're going to say last, know the key point or the key funny bit and go over your way to make that the very last word. That's what makes your timing look really good. And actually try writing it out or listen to yourself, giving that story and have it transcribed if you hate listening back to yourself like most people do. So like we use a tool like Rev.com and just put it on a script and go, wow, I say a lot of waffle, unnecessary words when I'm telling that story. Imagine I was a comedian and I only had a short time period to work with. Could I tell that big, long winded story in one minute? And if I could, what would be the words that I use? And just look at it because it just forces you to be concise. Most people like in business are always like, let me share a story with you. And most of us are like, oh, my God, I'm out of here. This is going to be terrible. We love storytelling. But once they telegraph the intention to try and tell it in an environment when we're not expecting it, we kind of go, oh, I'm out of here. So it's just little things like that. Like a comedian would never say "And Now I've got a joke for you. They just tell you a joke. So it's by telegraphing your intentions, you naturally change the expectations for something. And I think the world of business just gets so many of those things wrong in business presentations that comedians would never get wrong. Do you ever go to a comedy club, like a business event, if you go to it, you'll hear them do an introduction for a speaker. And most business speakers and presentations don't realize so when you're in a meeting or you're giving a pitch or you're speaking at a conference, that your talk starts with your introduction. It does not start when you start speaking. So a comedian knows that and a comedy club knows that. So they use that to capture some sort of anticipation and build up an excitement and guarantee that they get everyone's attention to get the speaker a round of applause and off to the best possible start. So if you go to there around the Bay Area, there's a conference called Tech TechCrunch Disrupt. And they'll be like, our next speaker's Brian. Brian's a Series A investor in Qualcomm. Brian's invested capital stock. Me and Brian used to go skiing together. We were really early at this particular company. Brian's a really great standout guy. Welcome, Brian. Everyone knows it's Brian. We don't care. We're not really tuned in anymore. It's gold on for too long. But in a comedy club, you're going to hear them. Ladies and gentlemen, your next comedian just opened for Jerry Seinfeld. His comedy album has debuted number one on iTunes. He's currently streaming on Netflix. Please welcome. And the keyword, which is the name, is only said once only said last, and that gets people's attention because they're asking, oh, who is it? And then when you say the name, they're naturally trained to clap, and then the whole talk gets off to a great start because you don't have to sell yourself as the business speaker. You can give your introduction to someone, give them three key points, and that way your audience is like, oh, you can just come out and be yourself. And nearly every presentation you go to in the world of business, it doesn't start like that, because they just don't know anything about the world of stand-up comedy, and they ignore comedians as a source of wisdom. So that's what I went very deep into, But it's the small things that make a huge difference. Well, yeah, I love it. I mean, you're already dropping specific tactics
1: that are right there in terms of what what is at the very end and how you build some anticipation, and uh, that's, that's really good. I'd love it if maybe we could, you know, zoom out a bit and, and hear sort of, I guess maybe... Fundamentally, what makes something funny or engaging? Like this is—it's kind of hard for me to pin down. Like, why is one thing funny and another thing not funny?
2: Yeah, well, funny is is a subjective one. I when you're trying to bake funny content, always start with fun and see can you turn fun into funny and then you don't have much of a failure rate. Also, if you attach to it that you're never trying to tell a joke, you're trying to tell a funny story and the keyword, the keyword a funny just happens to be at the end. So by moving that to the end, you're maximizing people's chances of reaction to it then you're taking a bit of pressure off yourself to be funny because no one knows you were trying to be funny in any way the engaging comes from storytelling number one always start with a story but do one very key thing allow the listener to see themselves in your shoes that's what makes it engaging so the audience whatever story you're telling is not about you it's about the audience so if you're talking about your mother they're picturing their mother If you're talking about the car that you had that was a beat-up car that was your first car and it was red and the exhaust pipe was hanging off it and it was a 1979 whatever it was the minute you start talking about that they start picturing their own car in their own head so you're automatically trying to make the storytelling process visual and your job as an engaging storyteller is to make that easy for people so any of the key details if it's an item it has a color if it's a person it has a name and that gives the signals that this is important pay attention You have a couple of little twists when you're trying to be engaging. You have to keep people hooked and you do it CSI style. Remember that TV show that was a bit scary back in the days? The minute you turned it on, You know, it was a police um, investigation when the minute you turned it on, someone was dead within 10 seconds. Somebody was on fire, there was like a cat and a hippo, you're like, what is going on in this thing? (sighs) Something falls out of a window to the (laughs) down 20 stories. (laughs) Exactly. They're dead. Who killed this priest and why is he dead within 10 seconds? Well, I better hang around and find out. And that's the natural curiosity with engaging stories, that it does not start chronologically. You're not walking through somebody through your LinkedIn bio or your resume or your job experience, you gotta grab them right in the middle of the action. So you never start off by, say you're climbing a mountain, you never wanna talk about your mental decision to climb that mountain. You wanna start near the summit of the mountain. Is there a chance you're gonna make the top? I don't know. And then you change some of the keywords when you're telling that story to make them in the present tense. So you never want to say, I was on the side of the mountain looking at the top. It's like I'm standing looking at the summit of the mountain and I can't feel my feet anymore. People are like, whoa, what's happening? And it just changes the dynamics of the story instantly. So if you listen to Snap Judgment or NPR, some of the award-winning storytelling podcast, you will hear every one of those guys change the wording of the stories to the present tense because that brings it to life. And within it, they're going to be using a lot of comedic techniques like a they will try and build in triple sets anytime they can, which is just basically coupling elements into groups of tree, that number that Irish people cannot pronounce. Um, but your ba- tree is the smallest number of elements that your mind needs to create and recognize a pattern. And all comedians and great gifted storytellers are doing usually is breaking that pattern, and that makes content memorable because tree is easy to remember. But if I say one, two, four it's only retrospectively that you can figure out that I was multiplying the numbers. So it appears that I'm ahead of you a little bit. So I, I always would give an audience apples, apples, oranges. When Chris Rock was talking about, he had a joke that's a bit dated now, but he was like, women need to, all they need to survive is air, food and compliments. I mean, it's not hugely amazing stuff and it's dated now and it's reference obviously, but it just demonstrates clearly that pattern is one, two, four. And when you're storytelling, people who incorporate those things link to start to the finish, put the key words at the end and start in the action. Use key details, colors and names. People just see themselves within the story. And that's what makes it engaging.
1: All right. Well, this is so much good stuff. So fast. So.
2: I, I'm loving it. Yeah, sorry, I got excited there. No, bring it forth. That's that's kind of the tactical side of it. But it's, there isn't much more to it than that. Like people have courses on storytelling and you're like, stop with your four-day seminar on storytelling. This isn't an innate human thing that we all know how to do. We just don't all know how to do it in the most succinct form possible. So it's just consciously editing out all those details that don't need to be in there and you yourself identifying the key point of the story and go, you know this, when I tell this in a pub, where do my friends laugh? Like when I tell this at the dinner table, where's the biggest reaction moment and what do people remember or what can they say back to me? And you just need to take out words to get to those points quicker.
1: Well, all right. So now in your book, you lay out seven principles. We've already kind of hit a few of them here in terms of... Uh, having it start right in the middle of things with a story. Uh, can you walk us through some of the other key principles that we haven't touched on yet?
2: Yes, my favorite by a mile is to build in a technique called a callback. And the beauty of a callback is, and this for job interviews, for meetings, a callback is killer. It is simply a reference to something that was said in the moment that couldn't have been pre-scripted or planned. It was enjoyable between you and that other person and it looks extremely spontaneous. So in the world of storytelling or comedy, a comedian, Dave Chappelle, is is known for using a lot of callbacks where he'll drop something at the start and he's always going to come back to it later on in the set. And a great story will always have the same thing. In the, on a book, it's called the book ending technique in a movie where they drop something at the start, they put in some clues and they're always going to come back to it. And I'd say and in in just in the world of general presentation, you're in a meeting, you're in a job interview, you're on a sales call. You can use this stuff. Daily. Like I was on the call the other day with um trying to pitch someone from Salesforce. And I knew through research we had mutual friends who organized a pretty wacky party in San Francisco where they all dress up around Christmas as elves. All parties in San Francisco are kind of wacky in fairness. You go in and they're half naked, go around on a bicycle from some burning man cult that you didn't really know you're now a member of all of a sudden. I've definitely had those nights out, but I was chatting to them. They they knew about this elf party organized by one of their colleagues. So at the end of the call I'm like, well, listen, I look forward to speaking to you next week. If I don't hear from you, I'll shoot you an email. Worst case scenario, I'll see you at an elf party. So even in that conversation that would have taken place on a call, you notice it's got the rule of three, it's got the triple set, it's got the flip at the end of it, and it's got the callback, the reference to the joke that was already shared between a couple of people. So like I I had to give a TEDx talk at very short notice about a year ago, and it ended up in front of like 2,400 people. And I'm sitting in the audience, which is a key cool thing a comedian can do sometimes and any business speaker should do is watch the people before you. How many times in life have you seen a business speaker go on and talk about and reference something that somebody else just talked about? And you're like, well, you're not even listening to the last person like they already said this. So I would always sit in the audience and just watch what's happening before me. And I remember this lady is standing there. And she's just come on the stage and she hasn't got much of an introduction. Nobody really knows her background. And there's a smoke machine and it's clearly broken because there's way too much smoke in this theater and there's two thousand four hundred people. And she's the very first talk of the day, kicking it all off. And she says, I'm going to start this talk when I feel an earthquake. And then she just stops and stands there in dead silence. And just the tension is multiplying by the second. And we got to about 40 seconds and people are, are vocally shouting out the words earthquake. They haven't a clue what's going on. And then finally she stops and goes, right, I felt one. And up on the live feed pops a magnitude earthquake in in Guatemala or somewhere. And she is actually a human cyborg. And she's had these sensors fitted in her body that allowed her to feel any seismic plate shift anywhere in the world. And it's one of the craziest things you've ever heard. But that wasn't really said in the introduction. The audience didn't know this. So they just thought she was nuts for 30 to 40 seconds. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is a perfect callback. This is something that I couldn't have planned for. So I'm super nervous and I've, I don't have like butterflies in my stomach. I have pigeons, like I am sweating bullets, all the usual nerves that you're getting ready when you're going to do a talk. But rather than focus on that, I'm like, I'm just trying to remember what she said. So I went up and I'm standing on stage. And the same 2,300, 400 people are staring at me. And I was like, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a bit nervous, to be honest. I'm put off because I don't know how to start this talk. I had initially planned to just stand here and wait for an earthquake. um, But that's been done already. And just they cracked up and this applause just keeps building and building. And I was like, and you're obviously a great audience because she said, earthquake, I left the building like you didn't even budge from your seats. How much did you pay for these tickets? And now they know I couldn't have planned for this. This is obviously in the moment. And it's, again, it's it's a technique that you'll see in a lot of great stories and a lot of great live performances and even just great job interviews where whatever the other person says, you've got to listen enough to give it back to them. And in the world of, of comedy and storytelling, it just shows that you're not separate from the audience. You're actually one of the audience.
1: Yeah, that's powerful and a great example to to bring that to life in terms of, it's clear that that was not pre-packaged. it's It's in the moment. It calls back to something unique because I guess if you called back to something,
2: I don't know, not that noteworthy, like- Well, yeah, you don't want to reference something not funny.
1: Yeah, boy, my, that I was gonna wear a red shirt, but the last speaker was wearing a red shirt, huh? like you like, none of us care about that. Like, <laughs> you just, like we're not at all uh, moved by what
2: you're saying here. But then if you, here's an example of stuff that isn't wildly exciting. I, I spoke at a Google conference recently When I was at a developers conference and I sat and I watched the three speakers before me and someone told a story about Indonesia. And they're like, oh, my grandmother in Indonesia is kind of crazy. And I was like, all right, the audience laughed a bit at that, noteworthy. And then someone started talking about origami and linking their passion for origami to coding. I'm like, all right, that's a bit unusual, noteworthy. And then the biggest cheer of the morning by far was when someone gave a talk and they said, we need more Google credits. Now, I have not got a clue what Google credits are, but these people were going wild for Google (laughs) credits. So like about uh, doing my talk and a comedian will do this all the time, they'll get up and the first 30 seconds are pretty locked down unless they're going to do the callback and go up. So what I did in the TEDx talk is a bit risky because I haven't established any relationship with the audience and I'm clearly going off script. So the payoff is huge, but the potential for failure is a little bit high unless you know key things. So a smarter way to do that is prepare the first 30 seconds of your talk like a comedian would do or a great storyteller. Make sure you get off to a good start and then try the goofing around just a little bit. So if it doesn't pay off, you can just go seamlessly back into what you're talking about. So I get on stage at this Google event and I start my talk as I normally would. I'm like, and I just stopped for a second. I'm like, it's an interesting day today. I tell you, I've learned a lot. I didn't know anything about coding, but now I know a lot about Indonesia and I'm scared of grandmothers over there. Uh, Origami and coding are linked. Who'd have known? And most of all, my biggest takeaway is what's clear that everyone in this room should get immediately more Google credits. And they go wild. And it's just it's an applause break for someone they don't know who's a stranger and an outsider and definitely has imposter syndrome, because what do I know about developers or coding? But they're reacting to a technique. Again, it's the callback. It couldn't be pre-planned, but it is. It's put into a structure that just allows you to move along seamlessly. And it's nearly like a magician pulling back a magic trick. Someone showing you, oh, well, actually, I'm using a structure where I just need to pick different elements every time. But those elements are quite important. The biggest reaction has to be last. It's the same as the rule of three. So normal thing, normal thing, biggest thing. And you want it to build recency into that as well. So you want most recent mention, second most recent mention, third most recent mention, because then they know what you're doing. They're like, whereas if you do it the other way around, they don't catch on as quickly. Okay, well, 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 so much good stuff here. So Again, to have
1: rocking, engaging stories, we want to have the good or funny bit to be last. Uh, patterns and, and threes are great as our callbacks. It's absolutely critical that it is relatable. Like I see myself in your in your story, in your shoes, and it's it's succinct in that we're we're getting just the most relevantly excellent bits and and stripping away excess words and sentences and details that that don't need to be there we add some detail like colors and names Uh, tell me any other critical ingredients for great storytelling
2: yeah I mean you've hit the I think you just have to love the story you're telling is probably the most critical one like you actually have to dig it yourself and you actually have to get a bit excited when you're telling it and it has to be Just from the heart. And the more personal it is, the better, the more unique to you. And you may be like, oh, that story is inappropriate. It's not if you make it appropriate. You can tell a story that's as nuts as you like. I remember doing it. It's the transition line that's the key thing. So once you plan the story and you're building it into some form of talk or some part of learning point, once you write the story, go back and then write a transition line that makes it pretty fine and pretty obvious and unquestionable why you're sharing that particular story. So I was speaking at a conference recently in Portugal called Web Summit. It's the world's largest tech conference. And they had me hosting a session on innovation, which I know nothing about whatsoever. Unless I find a new way of washing my underpants, that's about as innovative I get most of the time. So I don't really know a lot about it. I don't really know how to start it off because they have 100 of the world's most innovative large scale companies in theory. Sitting around, and I just start off telling about my mother. And I was like, geez, you know, my mother came over to San Francisco to real, uh, visit me recently. And, you know, she's a bit older, grew up pretty Catholic and conservative. And we're just sitting there on the couch. And out to know her, she's like, David, do you have any of those cannabis cookies? And I was like, cannabis cookies. I was like, as it happens, I actually have a whole fridge full of them, thanks to San Francisco, for legal medical reasons, obviously. So I fed her a few of them and just it was life changing. We were making roast potatoes, which is basically caviar for Irish people at the time. And she was over staring at the oven like a puppy, just waiting for these things to be done. We nearly had to drag her away from it. The odour was kicking her off. It was her first time in life having the munchies. And she was basically snorting potatoes as they were coming out. Totally changed her life. She went off walking to the Golden Gate Bridge the next morning like this lady hadn't been walking in years, came back with a pair of Lululemon pants on her. I couldn't believe it. I was like, she's like, all oh, the girls are wearing them and corrupted my auntie when I went home. There's like weed smell coming down from the house in Ireland. I was like, Geez, what is going on here? And the thing is, you'd think, oh well, that story's not relevant to to anything. It it got more bonkers. Long story short, like I once say, she's like, David, what do you think of that gay marriage in Ireland? You know, because Ireland was the first country in the world by popular vote to legalize gay marriage, which is quite a turnaround for a place that's seen as backwards in the eyes of a lot of people to be very forward that for quick. I mean, ma, before I could answer, me ma says, David, nothing new to me. I was the first lesbian in Ireland to get married back in nineteen seventy. And I was just sitting there dumbfounded. I was like, does dad know about this? Like, what's going on here? And she's like, well, when your dad and I were going to get married, he got a bit drunk the night before, lost his birth certificate. We couldn't find it. But luckily he had a dead sister, Patricia. She died when she was two. And I was like, dad had a dead sister, Patricia. You never mentioned this to me before. And she's like, well, it's not central to the story. Don't worry about it. I was like, this sounds pretty central to me, ma'am. And she goes on. She's like, well, the priest didn't have the best eyesight. So your dad's called Patrick. His dead sister's called Patricia. So we just went ahead and used her birth certificate. So technically, I'm married to your dad's dead sister. Delighted with herself. Right. And I'm at this tech conference and I was telling them something similar. I can't remember how much detail I went into on the weed, but I was like, we're all in here in this room focused on innovation. But how well do you know your own family members? You assume that your customers, you know them, that you know what they want and they desire. But I didn't know my man was into munching weed cookies and was experimenting with lesbian marriage on the side. Sometimes we assume we know things and we shouldn't. There's nothing that research can't solve that we could get to know our customers better and drive further innovation. And in whatever waffly section you put in there off the top of your head it will come out better than what I just said off the top of mind. So off the top of your head, then script it and write it and say, how do I get from this story to illustrate a point that I want to make? So the core point there was like, you don't know your end users as well as you think you do. And I'm going to substitute my parents for them in that story. So a big skill in the world of storytelling, I think that's overlooked a lot of the time is what is the transition line or what is the excuse you need to give yourself to make that story make perfect sense for your audience? And,
1: and so in the sequencing, the transition happens after the story and not before the story?
2: Yeah, usually. Unless you say you kick off, a lot of TED Talks will start in this way as well, or you'll notice a lot of good, effective Talks will start with one very generic statement, and then they're into the story. And the story, the the statement is generic for a reason because they don't want to get people to argue with them off the bat. So they're not like a lawyer when you're doing storytelling or you're doing any form of live performance, you're trying to win over the audience. So if you have an argument, you're not going to make it at the top. You're going to hide it. So say I I got up there and I say, Oakland is a crazy place and I'm in San Francisco pretty close to Oakland, someone will cross their arms dead stare me and go, I don't agree with you. I live there. I love the place. I don't agree with that statement. But if I say Oakland can be an interesting place sometimes, pretty much that statement would be agreed to everybody, agreeable to much more people. And then it allows me to tell the story. So I haven't made my point of view clear on it. So it's a bit more intriguing. Oh, what does this guy think about it? What's he going to say? Where as opposed to, I hate this. Let me tell you why which you don't want to make. So it's nearly the anti-lawyer's approach to public speaking, where a lawyer will make their argument really quickly because that's their job. They're on the clock to do it. As a public speaker, you really have to walk people into it, win over the room to get them on your side, and then your closing argument kind of sneaks up on them. So you have full license to tell the story. There's a TED Talk by Sean Asher about happiness that's... um, one of the best you'll ever see. I think it's the eight or ninth most watched in the world. But if you watch it, it's 11 and to 12 and a half minutes long. And the first four and a half minutes are a story about him playing toy soldiers. His sister. Yeah, with his sister and, and breaking her arm. And it has nothing to do with anything. And you'll see the same thing in Ken Robinson's TED Talk. It's a Do Schools Kill Creativity. It's the most viewed and popular TED Talk of all time. And he tells a million stories, to well, not a million, slight over exaggeration, but there's at least four to five stories in there that have absolutely nothing to do with that topic. But they're beautiful stories that you can tell he loves telling and they loosely are connected to the topic. So if you're given a talk about technology, your parents struggles with um, sending you emojis. And an inappropriate basis or whatever, you're getting eggplants from your mother in the middle of the night who literally thinks they're just eggplants and nothing else. Well, that's mildly entertaining to an audience and you can use that to support a transition line that might be the struggles of a certain demographic to adapt to different features of user design.
1: Well, yeah, this is, this is really rich stuff. I guess I'm thinking about there's there's very different modes of communicating. Like you mentioned the lawyer, I'm thinking about consultants. So we, we always talked about uh, answer first, you know, or the executive summary. Like, it's like, all right, you know, David, you need to sell this division uh, for four key reasons. You know, it's unprofitable, it's shrinking and whatever. Uh, and and so then it's sort of right from the get-go. And so now uh, the hour, our, I can speak for the consulting industry. The consultant's perspective on the matter is that that is a uh, an efficient use of time for busy executives who don't want to guess as to what your slide means. They want you to lay out the argument. And so I, I guess that's how I'm thinking about the trade-off there is it's less fun than what you're talking about. It's less... Engaging, unless you have a really strong vested interest in that th- position uh, on either side, um, but it may be
2: faster. How do you think about this, like the, the different uh, approaches? I think it's that's fundamentally the reason why many of us live and are subjected to so many boring meetings, because we feel we take the emotion out of people and we assume that they want the highest value in the shortest amount of time illustrated with numbers and graphs. Whereas realistically, our human brain is crying out for the story behind the numbers. So you can show me a chart in the line. They're like, oh, look at the way the line goes up. And then it goes down again. And then it goes up. I bet you didn't see that coming. Woohoo! amazing. Please share your slide deck with me. Like by way of interest, next time you give a presentation, give a link at the end and say, here's a link. Make it a bit.ly link so it's trackable. And give it to people because they always ask for the slides. They love asking for slides. Oh, I'd love to get the slides from that presentation. And just see how many people actually click on that. Like it is minuscule. I do it at big conferences where it's like 2,000 people. People don't care. They just, they like the story. They like relating to you as a human. They're more likely to buy from you if they learn something about you. And if you have that kind of, it's very hard to like someone who just leads with the numbers and just says, here's the four things you need to do to turn this business around today. Where if you can illustrate one of those things for me, I'm much less likely to give you resistance in following your advice in it if the story is so clear as to why I should do it.
1: Okay, understood. Well, well, tell us, we got a lot of good stuff. Uh, You've got something I can't resist. You've got a secret for finding the funny. Preparation, anticipation, punchline. We've touched on some of this. Can you expand on this approach?
2: Yeah, I don't know if that is—it's definitely not a secret because you'll see it all over the time. But yeah, it's—it's it's just what is that little bit of buildup that you need there to flip it. I think it's the—it's the, most easily repeatable in the world of visual presentation. So, like, if you have a whole bunch of data and words on a slide or some form of presentation in your job, just take it off, like, and put the key word or metric or break it down to five words. And if you want to have a bit of fun and you want to get funny in there, just don't take a picture that's funny and throw it up there and point at it like a lunatic and be like, look at that dog. I found it on the internet. It's nice, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, okay, you're a weirdo. But if you build some anticipation to the image and use the misdirect, like the one, two, four, basically you're setting up a sequence where you're not going to give them what they expect. like, I'd like to share with you our new mascot. The marketing team has been hard at work
1: for months finding just the perfect brand, you know, And then that
2: ridiculous dog is like, like, ah! (laughs) Exactly. Or tree-legged hippo or anything. And then they always react. I I had a friend, she was speaking at a conference in Australia. She was the head of growth for Airbnb at one stage when they were in pure hyperinflation mode. And she's like, here's a picture of me. And what I love is that I look so calm and calculated at this. My desk is organized. At the inside, I actually feel like this. And that's the moment that builds the anticipation because they're like, well, what's this look like? And then the image becomes the flip. So the timing on that is quite important to build up the expectation, then reveal the image and then comment on the image. So she showed them a picture of a little girl getting sprayed in the face by an out of control fire hydrant for what she then. And they all cracked up laughing. But it's not that it's it's viral hilarity by any means, but it just gives that anticipation. And it's a very clear and simple misdirect. And I would say just bear that in mind when when you're presenting any form of information from where it may be to a job interview or anything. Just try and try and not do what they're expecting you to do. Yeah.
1: Well. Well. Maybe final question before we hear about your favorite things. If folks. They think, okay, this is good stuff for good content and it's funny, but hey, I think I'm maybe just too nervous <laughs> to uh, to deliver at this kind of high level. It seems intimidating to to go, it's like advanced ninja skills <laughs> in presentation is what you're asking. And I'm nervous already right now with my not so funny presentations. How do you recommend folks overcome stage fright?
2: Yeah, well, I think number one, we get sold on the belief that we can overcome it, which I think is mostly false. I never overcame it, but I got really good at managing it. And everybody else I've talked to years got really good at managing it. And I would add to that by saying when you're talking about advanced ninja skills... It's a funny thing in, in the world of public speaking, they'll try and sell you a beginner course, advanced, intermediate, whatever it might be. We're not learning a language here. There is no intermediate or advanced level. We're just speaking. And the people who get paid 30 grand to talk, they make the same mistakes as someone is doing it for the first time. They just don't know it because they have a bit of a false confidence that goes with the title they have. But just recognize that... The little things that make a big difference are not advanced. So outsourcing your introduction is super easy so that you don't have to start off listing your own achievements and building your credibility. Do that every time. Use an app like Perfect Timer, which is totally free, to track the timing of your presentation and go short before long. Never talk for an hour if you don't have to. Like the the brain taps out. The maximum human attention span, according to John Medina, who's one of the world's leading brain psychologists, is 959. Once you go over that, you're in a little bit of an uphill battle to keep people's attention. So realize that no one's ever going to come up to you after a presentation going, that was amazing, I just have one problem, I wish it was longer. Not even your family or loved ones, that granny you haven't seen in years, none of them want you to go for longer. So go short before long. I would say never finish on a and a like, this, these are just simple things. Like, when it gets to the end of your talk, say, I'm going to take a few questions before I make my conclusion. 99% of the world speakers don't do that, and they stand there like an absolute lemon while nobody asks them questions. They feel mildly embarrassed, and then they don't get an applause because nobody knows it's over because anyone could ask a question. Anyway. And we've all, every speaker in history has been in that scenario, and they stand there, and the host is like, ooh, has someone got a question? You down the back, and that person's like, hell no. I don't have one. They nearly go in under the table. And use the speaker go to walk off. Okay, we're finished here. And then someone shouts a question. Oh, actually, I have one. So now you were back on again. Now people are like, Oh God, how long am I going to be here? So they start leaving. It's like it's like just take something like your favorite band. Like you two would never go around the world with their new album. Of course, I'm going to take an Irish example here and be stereotypical. But they're never going to go to Madison Square Garden, debut their new album, play ten songs, get to the ninth song, and they only have one left. They planned it. It's the best song. It's the one that's going to bring it home. But they're like, you know what? We were going to play that. But how about like, does anyone here in the audience sing? Or anyone to bring this one home? Anyone to bust out a ukulele? That would be insanity. But every speaker does that. And they're like, hey, audience, say something crazy to me. So just using that sentence, I'm going to take a few questions before I make my conclusion, tells people that there's more to come. Their questions have to be short and sweet. And of course, you're going to save a slide with learning points on it to remind them what you're actually talking about and how many are there going to be. Three. And like those things aren't focusing on funny. They're not focusing on humor, but they make you look way slicker all of a sudden as a speaker. And maybe you weren't the most confident. It's like me with shaky hands. Like my nickname in college was Shaken Stevens. When I gave a presentation, I shook so much that I turned into an Irish salsa dancer. Like my whole body was going in places that I didn't want it to be gone. People would come from other classes just to see me falling apart in front of people. And it's not a matter of how do I stop shaking? I can't because that's adrenaline. I'm never going to convince myself that goes away. So to this day, that happens. But you just identify, well, what are all the things that are going to go wrong? Someone's going to give me a glass of water. There's no way I can drink a glass of water with a shaky hand. I'm going to have a bottle of water and my mouth's going to be dry. Well, geez, I'm never going to be able to open a bottle of water. So I better, and if it's a full bottle of water, I'm going to squirt it all over me. My hands are shaking so much. So it's a matter of little things like that, like no glass, get rid of that one. Make sure the bottle of water is three quarters empty and already open and safe distance for you to knock it over. If you're more comfortable, start with your hands in your pockets. Don't show people shaky hands. Use a technique called the memory palace that was popularized by Joshua Foer in his book Moonwalking with Einstein, and he has a killer talk on that as well on TED, and it's just a memorization technique that allows you to visualize key points so you're never going to hold notes in your hands. So now if you shake, you don't have to hold notes, you look way more professional. And then if something happens, the memory palace, you will never ever go blank and nearly everyone's biggest fear when it comes to public speaking is going blank on stage, but nearly nobody teaches it, which is insane. So, like, if I want to teach you the word in Spanish for it to fit, the word is caber. It's super hard to remember that tomorrow. But if I ask you to picture a New York City taxi cab, a yellow bubble one, and it's pulling up downtown Manhattan in front of Trump Plaza, and a bear runs out of this taxi, or runs out of Trump Plaza and tries to get into a taxi. And of course, the hairy bear doesn't fit. He's huge, and his hairy legs are kicking out the window as he tries to squeeze his body in the window. All right. And his hairy bear bottom is in the air. And you're visualizing that. You're visualizing that the cab, right the bear does not fit in the cab caber is the word for to fit so you have this whole little trick of remembering information and making it visual and for the rest of your life you'll never forget the word for to fit in spanish and it's because you've used something called the memory palace which is visualizing creating a crazy story that only makes sense for you for everything you need to remember and in the memory palace just means putting that picturing it taking place somewhere that's familiar to you so instead of having a bullet point list for your talk you picture your talk taking place in your house and all you're doing is walking around the lap of your house encountering crazy images that you've created like a bear trying to get into a taxi cab So when you put that together, you become very spontaneous public speaking because you're never going to forget what you're talking about. So if someone falls off a chair or farts or burps or screams or interrupts you, you react to it. You don't go into panic. If the fire alarm goes off, you don't try and keep going. You just say, God, the fire alarm's going off. Everything becomes an opportunity for some form of entertainment because at any moment you can get back on track. So I just, I wouldn't think of it as trying to be funnier off the bat. I wouldn't put it as advanced level stuff. There's just a techniques that can make you look advanced that if you know 10 or 15 things that most people don't, no matter how many years they've been doing speaking, you can normally look better than them really quickly. So like, I know I have people all the time who write me messages and they're like, dude, I gave the exact same presentation as I did a year ago. I put in a couple of GIFs, some funny images, told one story, got voted the best speaker. No idea. Night and day to the last time. And it, it, that's the kind of stuff that happens all the time. So it's it's not as complex as people who are trying to sell you stuff make it out to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring?
2: I love, you know, I he was, I think I heard him on your podcast, Jeffrey Gittimer, and he has a lovely quote called the end of laughter is followed by the height of listening. And I just thought that sums up the world of public speaking, timing and delivery in one sentence, because the most attention you'll ever have from anyone ever is the moment after you make them laugh because their brain just says, give me more of that. So the dopamine spike lends itself to grabbing attention from an audience. So if you have to say something serious, the best time to say something serious and memorable and impactful or ask for money, for example, or whatever you're doing in your pitch is to make people laugh a little bit before that. But yeah, the end of laughter is followed by the height of listening. That one, I love, uh, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. But that's not really, Helen Keller It gets attributed to sometimes, but I'm, I'm not sure who actually said it. Okay. And how about a favorite study? Favourite study, you know, Stanford did one once where they had people locked in a room staring at babies all day. Now, it was a good few years ago. I don't think you could get away with that date. they are like all these research like, we're just going to borrow your babies. But the study was to show that babies on average laugh about 300 times per day and grown-ups laugh about 15. So for anyone who tells you you don't need a bit of laughter in your life, you definitely do. You need more of it. OK. And a favourite book? Oh, toss up. I like the man who tried to save the world, the Fred Cunney mystery, and the fish that ate the whale. And I I like both of those because they're just stories of those individuals that did things that you didn't think was possible just because they thought they could do it. Like the the Fred Coney mystery is a guy who decided to declare himself the world expert on humanitarian aid relief. So if a tsunami hit tomorrow, he'd be the first person that got the call from all the world's leading agencies. And he had no skills or qualifications to get himself that job. And he got to the point where George Soros was writing him checks and saying, go fix Chechnya. That's your job. (laughs) <laughs> it's probably I don't even think There's an audio book Version of it I lived with a girl Who was a, a journalist And she's like This is the best book You'll ever read That no one's ever Told you about So it's, yeah It's the man who Tried to save the world the Fred Cunning mystery. And the fish today, the whale, is about the guy, Sam the Banana Man Zamuri, who basically all the CIA manuals for taking over a, a, a company or, sorry, a country and putting a puppet president in place were based on what this guy did to take control of Honduras so he could sell more bananas. And uh, they're, they're brilliant stories. You're like, I can't, they're kind of things you're like, I can't believe I never heard of these stories before.
1: Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job.
2: I, I like HubSpot a lot. I don't know if it makes me awesome at my job, but it definitely improves me a bit. Or even the free version of HubSpot, I think when you're if you're selling anything online, I think just to be able to track emails and know that somebody actually opened your email, forwarded the links in your email or just activated or looked at it or was interested in it, that makes a big difference. But I, I use Rev.com a lot for transcribing stuff. Probably the easiest way you can improve your public speaking is to watch yourself or listen to yourself back but nobody ever wants to do that because it's painful and they will avoid it at all costs but if you put it through something like trent or rev.com it does a transcription service that turns your work into a script and it's really easy to see where you need to improve when you do that so i use that a lot that and perfect timer which is basically just a countdown timer on your phone that you can't miss because if you do public speaking and meetings and conferences usually you're so distracted you lose track of time or the event organizer tells you oh we'll keep track of the time we'll have a clock on the stage and then everything breaks so it, it saved my life a lot and that app is free i think it's called perfect timer mm-hmm. and a favorite it's, habit favorite habit kite surfing by miles i uh, nearly got killed on a weekly basis and i still love it so it must be good for something mm-hmm.
1: and is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks they quote it back to you often
2: they quote, You know, funny enough, it, Jeffrey Gittimer's line is the one that i built into my talks over the years that I love the most and is probably the most quoted. So I wish it was something that I said. But honestly, I think that sums up the whole argument for using humor the most at the end of laughter is followed by the height of listening.
1: Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Uh, towards David Nihill N-I-H-I-L-L dot com I think I have everything there and in the world of public speaking I put it under a course name called Hacking Public Speaking so that was my bit of marketing experimentation I was like I wonder if I offered people 50% of their money back for completion within 30 days would they actually do it because you know the way you take online courses I signed up to master class and I've never I'm not cooking like Jamie Oliver yet I'm just blowing up microwaves for survival or blowing up hot dogs in the microwave so that, that everything I know or learned the hard way is there, or you can read a lot of it for free. And I, th- I think I have a talk on Google, an author talk with a lot of the, the content around public speaking, if you just want to improve for free. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say to put more of your own personality out there in the world of business and you will get more clients from it. Don't give them that little bit of amazing numerical thing that you have in your presentation. Be like, oh, that that number is going to resonate with them. The personal story and the something that allows them to see themselves in your shoes and come up to you after a presentation or just relate to you on a one on one level that's going to be a story, something for your own life that you normally wouldn't share. And if you think you have nothing funny, the magical recipe for that one is, if it's embarrassing for you, it's funny for me.
1: (laughs) David, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck at all of your fun adventures.
2: Thank you very much.
1: You know, I think what I appreciated most from David, what's really stuck with me, is the callback. Because it's really true that if you take the time to listen, to note something, and then call it back at the end. It just makes people like you. <laughs> it just makes you feel good. I feel good when I get a call back. The person on the other side feels good when they get a call back. It happens at the end of my podcast interviews at times. And you know, just sort of a good for a little laugh and a smile. It's not freaking hilarious like, you know, gut-busting, knee-slapping, but just, oh, yeah, puts a smile on your face. Boy, particularly for maybe like informational interviewing exchanges, if you want to be a little memorable, that's right on. Or uh, job interviews, uh, networking sales. Uh, I mean, just everyday life, having a quick chat with a friend, Uh, the callback. It's a very high probability smile generator, and it's a great final note to leave people with. So that stuck with me. I dug it. Hope you did as well. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP624. And if you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe on your podcast app, Player of Choice, so that you will always have the latest episodes displayed and raring to go and play good stuff. Hope to catch you next time. Peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First... Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full-text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered.